0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Nettle Meadow Farm cheese and spirits pairing taking place on Saturday, June 18th at Nettle Meadow Farm. For more information, visit nettlemeadowcheeseandspirits.com. That's N E T T L E Meadow Cheese and Spirits dot com.
2: So, yes, it's Monday, it's 12 o'clock, and it is time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. Uh, and, of course, uh, my new segment, Joys and Sorrows, starts off this week with an incredible sorrow. And I mean this in the most sincere way, and that is that my beloved engineer, friend, mentor, and boon companion, Jack Inslee, is engineering my show for the last time after almost eight years. Well, seven and a half, anyway. And Jack, I cannot, I'm like tearing up. I can't tell you how much I'm going to miss you. Anyway, uh, on to, um, well, this could be a joy or a sorrow. It depends on how you feel about it. Uh, But the bad news for you spam lovers is that Hormel has decided to discontinue spam snacks. Now, I know you've all been rushing to the store to buy your spam snacks, but apparently not enough of you have been doing so because they are taking this product off the store shelves by July, I believe. Now, here's a nice long item about Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut is a subsidiary of Yum! brands, and I've been following uh, Pizza Hut and Yum! because they are expanding so wildly into Asia. Uh, It's really remarkable how much uh, revenue they're deriving and how quickly uh, their products have caught on. But um, they are going to remove a bunch of ingredients from their foods, including meats containing BHA and BHT, which are artificial preservatives and cheese and chicken meat. And they're also going to um, remove chicken meat source from animals raised on antibiotics uh, important to human medicine. Now, to go on about this, um, they are also removing partially hydrogenated oils and monosodium glutamate and 2.5 million pounds of salt will be removed from their ingredient list over uh the over the well they have done over the last five years um and then here's a quote from um the chief brand and concept officer this is what cracked me up. <clears throat> Providing our customers with restaurant quality ingredients is something that has been at the core of Pizza Hut since the very first restaurant opened in Wichita 58 years ago, said Jeff Fox. It's so fundamental, and listen up to this because this is really great. It's so fundamental to our superior restaurant quality beliefs that we rarely feel the need to talk about it. But that said, 58 years later, we are extremely proud to say that we still get our vegetables, our meats, Our tomatoes, our flour, our cheese, everything that makes a great pizza from top suppliers around the world. We are constantly working to lead the industry in this area and believe it it is important to let our customers know exactly where their food comes from and how it's made. So did you hear where the food is coming from in that statement? No. (laughs) I loved it. It was great corporate spin. Really beautiful. Um, And then... Uh, Just to go on to the uh, fact that they're removing uh, antibiotic-laden chicken from their restaurant menu uh, uh, by the end of March next year, I I do have to ask you, how much chicken goes on pizza? So, like, this whole story is basically nonsense. Like... You don't put a lot of chicken on pizza. Uh, You haven't said anything about where you source your ingredients from. It's not even clear that they're made in America. You know, not that I'm particularly upset about that idea. But just the whole thing was just like such beautiful corporate speak um, that I had to share that with you. Because it's a great example of of what uh, many would call greenwashing or just, yeah, corporate spin. Anyway, that's enough about Pizza Hut. Uh, I want to let you all know that from June 8th to 10th, the National Pork Expo is taking place in Des Moines. And when I looked at the agenda It's mostly a big trade show I guess a lot of people bring their porkers in And look at genetics and stuff like that But I noticed that the seminars In clear two days worth of seminars And the same talk on antibiotic usage Is given four times over two days So at least we know that they are discussing The changes that they were supposed to have been making Over the last three, four years Um, And then here's another interesting thing about politics, because, you know, it's a political cycle and we need to be paying attention to how people vote. The House is scheduled to vote on H-Con, Congressional Resolution number 89. And the quote in the uh, I think I got this off of the Fern uh, Ag Insider, um, expressing the sense of Congress that a carbon tax would be detrimental to the U.S. economy. I guess, uh, you know, try, try to figure out who's funding that particular bill. Um, and then, in other news, you know, I love to follow Sam Brownback, uh, my favorite governor from Kansas, who has led his uh, state to absolute ruin by following the discontinued uh and discredited uh economic model of trickle-down theory. So, uh, Brownback slashed the income taxes on his state residents by 29% on the top incomes, and last month he ordered $17 million in immediate reductions to universities, and earlier this month he delayed $93 million in contributions to pensions for school teachers and community college employees. The state has also siphoned off more than $750 million from highway projects to other parts of the budget over the past two years. Brownback, however, blames not his tax cuts, which were Radical draconian, even uh, he blames the economic sluggishness the state ranked forty third in total personal income growth in two thousand and fifteen and he blames it on slumps in agricultural prices, which i haven 't noticed energy production and aircraft manufacturing. This all comes from CBS News anyway, I thought that was an amazing story I mean, just to follow this guy brown back i mean these there 's now a suit there 's a supreme Court um, Case uh, about how he is now taking money from poorer school districts and putting it into charter schools, and and the, when the higher tax income tax bracket communities demand more money than they get it at the expense of the poorer income tax brackets. So uh, you know the guy is an absolute fool and a pig, clearly. So um, just keep up on that Brownback news. I love that stuff. And then here's my last one. I know because we have to. We have a great show with Vera Chang from Shelburne Farms, and we are going to be talking a lot about sustainable farming and how you make that work. Um, but just my last favorite thing uh, is this, that Christie's, the auction house, um, sold a 12-inch Hermes Birkin, that's a style of purse apparently, a matte Himalayan crocodile handbag with white gold hardware set with 245 F-colored diamonds weighing close to 10 carats. The hammer price? Take a wild guess, Jack. What do you think? No idea. What do you think a handbag no, is worth oh these goodness,
1: days? I don't know. Really? I'm not really in the handbag market.
2: I know you're not really a guy who carries a purse. I know, but I think you should all know this: that this the hammer went down on this purse at three hundred thousand oh one hundred and sixty-eight dollars. That's right, folks. Wow! It beat out a hanging scroll that had belonged to the Chinese Empress Dowager Cixi of the king dynasty so what price purse apparently it's actually a growing field of investment for people who are collectors it just blows my mind um anyway let's take a quick break jack and we'll come right back with our team from shelburne farms way 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 up in vermont um, which i had the pleasure and privilege of visiting a week before last and we have a lot to talk about so we'll be right back with vera chang from shelburne farms
1: Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing is a celebration of good food and beverages in the newly restored Barn Loft event venue at Nettle Meadow Farm in Thurman, New York. On Saturday, June 18th, come sample and savor, then buy your favorite cheeses and beverages to take home. Nettle Meadow cheeses have been praised highly in national media and have won prestigious awards from the American Cheese Society. Taste samples of goat and sheep cheeses paired with an array of local regional wines, beers, and ciders. You'll never forget your first sample of rich, creamy Kunik, Nettle Meadows' trademark cheese. In Esquire, our very own Anne Saxelby said, Kunik, it may very well be the sexiest cheese in the USA. Nettle Meadow Farm is a goat and sheep dairy and cheese company in Thurman, New York, just below Crane Mountain in the Adirondacks, between Gore Mountain, North Creek, and Warrensburg. It's owned and operated by Lorraine Lembiasse and Sheila Flanagan. Both have a great love of animals, artisan cheese, and the unique challenges of farm life. Nettle Meadow Farm was originally founded in 1990, and it's the home of over 300 goats, dozens of sheep, and a variety of farm sanctuary animals. Again, the cheese and spirits pairing is Saturday, June 18th. For more information and tickets, visit Nettle Meadow Cheese and Spirits.com. That's N E T T L E, Meadow Cheese and Spirits.com.
2: We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to be talking with the team from Shelburne Farms. Um, Shelburne Farms is a nonprofit uh, farm and inn way up north in um, Vermont. It's uh, Right on the banks of Lake Champlain. It's an extraordinary place. Um, So, my first uh, guest will be Vera, who is coming on to talk, uh, just sort of give us the overall picture. Welcome to the show, Vera. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. Sure. um, I just want to give a little bio. She does their public relations and marketing. Um, She oversees the media and messaging for the farm's educational programs, which are Legion, um, and the 1,400 acre working landscape and all of the farm enterprises, of which there are many. And that's one of the things that impressed me so. So much um, about it. So, Vera, can you just give people a thumbnail sketch of like how it all got started, and and uh, you know why it's such a model of uh, nonprofit genius? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Definitely. So, the farm has a long, complex history. So I'll give you the abridged version. Mm, Basically, yeah. started in the 1880s as a model agricultural estate. In the 1950s, became a struggling raw milk dairy due to the advent of industrial ag. And today, for the past 43 years or so, we've been a nonprofit education organization, as you mentioned. Everything we do is about educating for a sustainable future. So a lot of farms work directly with farmers. We work with consumers. We care about connecting people with where their food and fiber comes from. Uh The way that we use the campus, um, well, the way that we use the farm is actually as a campus. We integrate production with education. So production helps feed us and our community, but it also keeps the farm afloat. And then we also are able to use the actual working landscape for our educational programs. We have a real working farm um, for our lessons of sustainability.
2: So who is, coming to, who is coming to take those lessons in sustainability? Who's your audience?
3: Lots of different people. I'd say our main audience is actually teachers. We care primarily about young people, they're our future, of course, who doesn't care about kids, but we work with teachers um, because they are the people who directly work with all the young people in the world. It's basically the multiplier effect. Every teacher Mm -hmm. has the opportunity to affect the lives of hundreds of young people. I think it's a middle school teacher that um, has the potential to work with 1,500 students over his or her lifetime, and an elementary school teacher has the potential to reach 600 students. So we can affect more change by, by working with teachers. Yeah,
1: I'm going to jump in real quick. Vera, just stay nice and close to the phone. You're kind of coming in and out. I'll, I'll edit this out, but just, um, yeah, stay nice and close to the receiver when you talk.
2: Okay. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you, honey. Um, thanks, Jack. <laughs> um, so when you bring the teachers in, are you giving them seminars? Or, like, I didn't really, because, you know, I was only there for a couple of days. I got to see the cheese making and all of the beautiful acreage and, like, what you're farming and raising. But when you're working with the teachers, is there, you have, like, a specific curriculum, and is it, like, they come for a couple of days, or how do you recruit them, and how do you, how do you disseminate your information Yeah, good question. So
3: teachers, I kind of use as a catch-all category for anyone who works directly with young people. So this is um, farm-based educators, these are school food service directors, and Uh of course, actual school teachers. So we are, we do a number of things. One is we're the backbone organization to the farm-based education network, um, which is about growing an international movement of farm-based education. So this, fall, for example, we'll be hosting a national conference, and and a lot of these things don't actually even happen on our farms ourselves because we believe Ugh. that change is about having a network of partners. We are also um, the Northeast lead for the National Farm to School Network, so we um, this summer we'll have the second ever Northeast Farm to School Regional Institute. So. That is an example of having teachers and the school food service and actually farmers come to the farm to discuss farm to school. And then we also go out and provide support in in school communities, whether it's Vermont or New York City or abroad. We, we don't see Shelburne Farms as the only place where one can integrate production and education and to mm-hmm. practice education for sustainability. There are lessons of sustainability everywhere, and our goal is to make the – the walls of schools transparent everywhere.
2: When you have like food service directors and stuff, I mean, do you guys bring in any legislators? Because I mean, one of the things that I've learned over the years sitting in this chair is that Part of the, the reason that we don't necessarily source, um, you know, school food locally is because of procurement policies, and I'm wondering how much those have an impact on the school food providers that you work with and how much change you've been able to help them affect in terms of where they buy their food from.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we are an education organization, so we mainly focus on that side, but we, as a 501c3, are allowed to allocate a percentage of our, our time to um, working on policy as well. And we're so lucky to be in Vermont because our legislatures are all, they're kind of like a stone's throw away from us. We, we do see them on the farm and they do come to our events.
0: But right, I think right. that's
3: one of the reasons why Vermont has been able to be one of the leaders in the country around farm to school particularly. Like We have Senator mm-hmm. Leahy, for, for example, who's a champion of farm to school and recently passed, passed his farm to school act. Um, and so that's, That's an example of one kind of political partnership we can
2: have. Right, right. Stay close to your mic, (laughs) Connie.
3: Thanks. It might be the farm phone. Things here can. Oh, yeah, that's true.
2: The The signal out there is really. I mean, people, you have to imagine this place. It's 1,400 acres of incredibly beautiful rolling Vermont farm country. On the banks of Lake Champlain. And I mean, it was, I went up like just after Memorial Day weekend. And I have to say the weather was incredibly great. And I've just never seen land as beautiful as I saw up there. And especially when I was driving back down from Jasper Hill Creamery. That was incredible. And I loved the driving. It was great. <laughs> I mean, how often do people say, I love driving five hours, you know? I really love driving five hours. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the products that you guys do, because um, you make some amazing stuff there, most notably the cheese. And we'll be talking about cheese and the dairy operation in a minute with um, with Sam Dixon and Kate Turcott. But um, tell us about sort of all of the, the food, the fiber, the cheese. You know, how is that... How does that stuff work, um, and what kind of a scale are you working on?
3: Sure. Yeah, so we run several enterprises. Um, as you said, one of them is the market garden. We grow vegetables, fruits, berries, 20 varieties of berries, mm. mushrooms, notably shiitakes, and even nuts on there. Right now we're really enjoying hazel birds. Um, So that's on seven acres, and we hundred around 150 varieties of crops. That's about 160 thousand dollars worth of produce, and the majority of that serves our inn, which is um, also home to our restaurant.
2: Right. The restaurant was excellent, by the way. The food was great.
3: Oh, fantastic!
2: Yeah, and so and let's talk a little bit about the cheese because you make. uh, Well, Kate will talk about it, but um, so there's cheese, and then you have a fiber. You have sheep. So is that just meat, or is it meat and fiber? Or and what do you do with the fiber?
3: Yeah, yeah. So meat, we have lamb, we grow around, raise around 95 lambs, and we have 27 beef cows. Mm-hmm. Um, the wool and the sheepskins we do sell at our market, um, uh. which is our farm store. Right. Um, and I would say that's around $37,000 worth of worth of revenue from the meat production.
2: Okay. So we're up to 200 grand plus the cheese. I just-
3: <laughs> right, the cheese is another million.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, because really it's, I, I, you know, I, do I dare ask what the operating budget is? Or is that, is that bad form? Is, um, I
3: believe it's 9 million.
2: Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So that's just a drop in the bucket.
3: Yep. Well, I have one more. It's really small, but... I always like to put a plug in for the forest because sometimes people forget that
2: we're yeah, right.
3: connected with agriculture. So we do um, tap for maple. We have 1,000 taps. And we, I think this year we're projecting to get $50,000 from it. We've recently expanded our maple production. Wow. But fiber also comes from the woodlands, of course, um, in terms of for furniture making and whatnot.
2: Oh, really? I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I was so wondering you- if you sold timber. So I guess you do.
3: We do, absolutely. So a lot of the barns that you saw are constructed out of our own timber. Yeah. And then actually a lot of the furniture, like right now I'm sitting at a table. This is a piece of maple that is from our own woods. So th- wow. the program that we had you at Pasture to Palette is all about connecting people from start to finish in cheese making, starting with the dairy, Yeah. Uh, just the cheese room. But um, we run another program that's coming up very soon, called Forest of Furniture. So that's all about connecting people with craft furniture making, but starting
2: in the woodlands. Nice. Amazing. We'll have so, to get you back. Uh, <laughs> no problem, honey. <laughs> like I said, I love that five-hour drive. It was great. <laughs> How about people just coming for sort of agro-tourism? Is that like part of your part of what you do there just like you know the people who come and stay at the inn are they signing up to go on the tour of the farm and go to the dairy and all of this the cool stuff that we did or is that just something that is um a byproduct of being a guest
3: Yeah yeah definitely we we hope to have this farm be accessible to all people we see 150,000 people on the farm a year lots of them from far away, different countries, and we also have a lot of people who just come from around the area.
2: Uh-huh. And, and they just can... want to see what you're doing.
3: Yeah. People come for all kinds of reasons. Um, mm. I mean, the, our primary motivation is really the educational piece. So we mm-hmm. engage in agritourism a lot like agri-education. Mm-hmm. People can have an educational experience that's a formal experience or an informal experience. So you, like, participated in a formal program, Patrick mm. Pallet. Um, but people can just come and they can wander the farms. We have 10 miles of walking trails that go through our fields and pastures and woodlands. Um, people can also go to the children's farmyard. It's, it's this to me is kind of the difference between agritourism and, ag- and agri-education. You know, the farmyard is not right. a petting zoo, it's staffed with farm-based educators. Every half hour, on the half hour, there's a new activity about connecting people with where food and fiber comes from. like. It's kind of the place where people come to milk a cow for the first time and to taste a carrot out of the ground for the first time. So we hope to be...
2: Well, I was really impressed with that because, um, you know, I was – obviously we went and and saw what you guys – what your educators were doing, and there was a group of young school children there. Um, And uh, it was fascinating watching the kids approach the cow. The cow showed the patience patience of Job. I mean, I I could only imagine – I don't know how you've trained that girl, but (laughs) – Crowns are particularly docile. But it was really remarkable. And then there were chickens in a chicken house that were laying eggs, and kids could go in and even pick up the chickens, and they could forage for the eggs. And, you know, it was really, I mean, the children were beside themselves with joy, and it was so lovely to see that and so sort of natural and spontaneous. And then they did a lot of sort of fun, you know, young people's, you know, very young people's um, educational tools as well. But it was really just the proximity to the animals that i thought was so fantastic um and being able to to milk a cow i milked a cow for the first time i'd never milked a cow that was awesome i loved it it was great i was like oh i could be heidi in another life definitely she was milking goats but still i've always wanted to have goats you had a few goats but not as many as i would have liked but anyway um i'm gonna just take a couple more minutes of your time and then we'll move on to sam and kate but um One of the things that you guys do is um, that I think is so important is sort of um, encourage people to A, recognize where their food comes from, but also sort of the resurgence of like learning some skills gaining some strategies to maybe grow a few of your own things or to make sure that you go to the farmer's market or something like that. What other tools, I mean, because one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that uh, relatively few people actually have a lot of uh, culinary skills. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in the fancy, like I'm Eric repair kind of way, but just like really basic stuff. And it's hard to make up for that cultural loss, in my opinion. And I'm wondering if, um, if you guys have strategies for how to teach people how to use some of the produce or, you know, different ways to cook uh, sort of less, um, less popular cuts of meat, for instance. Like, a lot of people know how to cook a steak, but they might not know what to do with a brisket or, you know, some other sort of slightly unfamiliar cut. And I'm wondering if there's an educational piece of your program that is designed to kind of bridge that gap.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we just talked about two different types of audiences. One are generally teachers slash educators and the other is right. general public. So I can speak to what we're doing for both of them. Teachers, I I wanna put a plug in for a really cool um book that we recently produced called New School Cuisine. And it was
4: Oh good. Say uh, it
3: yeah. again. What's the what's the name again? It's called New School Cuisine. Uh-huh. And it was the first ever school lunch book to be written by public school chefs for public school chefs. So it follows all of the, um, the USDA nutrition guidelines.
2: Uh-huh. But
3: it also sources local seasonal ingredients and is kid tested like something like five times. <laughs> <laughs> so you know that you'll be able to just roll it out in the kitchen and be able to cook all of these foods from scratch that are like, in season and meet the nutrition guidelines and be well received by kids. So that's that book is an example of working through that process of that book with, with the teachers that we've done that with um, has been an example of how we're contributing to the resurgence of scratch cooking and also farm to table.
2: Um, wow. That's a great project. I love that idea. It's called the new school cookbook, new school cuisine, new school cuisine, yes. new school and- cuisine. I'm going to send that on to my friend who does uh, school food here on the network.
3: Oh, great. Great. Yeah, so it's absolutely. actually free online on our website.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah. I'll totally send you an email right after this. Um, what else is going on up there? Because we should move on to our other guests. Um, any other programs you want to plug that are happening in the next couple of months? Sure. Um, well, I had mentioned the
3: Northeast Farm to School Institute is coming back to Shelburne Farms for the second year. So that's, that's one thing that I'm excited about mm-hmm. because of its you know, national implications around growing the farm-to-school movement. Right. Another, last year we had a partnership, we started a partnership with the James Beard Foundation to have their Chef's Boot Camp up to the farm. And there's just a really cool parallel between the work that we do. We're working to transform the education system through teachers who we see as change agents. And, of course, the James Beard Foundation is working to transform the restaurant world and the food industry through Chef's. So there's there's been a lot of really cool synergies that we've had between schools and chefs and some and we're looking forward to having them back.
2: That's fantastic, really great. Well um, let us uh, move on now and, and uh, bring uh, Sam Dixon on board. Uh, Sam is the dairy farm manager um, and he oversees the operations at Shelburne Farms uh, grass-based certified humane dairy. Um, he also manages the farm's sheep flock and forage production. Sam, are you there?
4: Yeah yep Hi, Hi. Sam. Hi,
2: how you doing, man?
4: I'm I'm pretty good. Okay, how glad to hear
2: it. So I have a couple questions for you, my friend. Um, that's assuming I can find them. First of all, tell us about the farm. What you produce? How many head of cattle? How many head of sheep? You know, like oh. what's what's tell us. Give us an idea of your day to day.
4: Okay, I'll just give you a thumbprint of the of the uh, of the farm. We're, we're operating on about 1,100 acres of grassland, like you said, along uh, Lake Champlain. We've got two miles of lakefront along. Mm on the farm so we're really conscious of our impact on water quality and we operate the farm as a grass farm so the whole farm is in either permanent hay or permanent pasture aside from the small acreage that's in vegetables. Uh, We've got 110 uh, milking cows on the farm. They're all purebred registered brown Swiss. The herd was started in 1950 by Derek Webb, who was the grandson of the founders of the estate, and we Uh we maintain it as a purebred registered herd. And this year we uh, lambed out 70 ewes and had about 135 lambs uh, born in February, March, and April.
2: Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of lemon.
4: Yeah, we, we, there was one two-week stretch where we had a hundred babies born, so we were very busy that time of year.
2: <laughs> Did you ever go to sleep? Like, I can't imagine that you ever went to bed.
4: Well, there's there's there was usually always somebody up. Yeah. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So, um, you have um, you do only grass for your animals, or I know that some people who are like in the dairy business, uh, is there forage? Do you feed them grain? Is it all grass fed? People seem to care about those things
4: yeah, currently we, we uh, feed a grain to the dairy herd and also some grain to the growing heifers, so we're not what's you know technically a grass uh, fed herd, so we do we do supplement the cows with. With with uh, some grain and silage, but we're very focused on on pasture management and uh, a high forage diet. We feed what I would describe as a low or moderate level of grain. Uh
2: huh. I don't have an issue with feeding grain as long as it's not all they eat, because I mean, otherwise you give you get into the whole uh, feedlot problem of acidosis, right?
4: Yeah. Well, I think you get cows evolved to eat uh, pasture and and grass, and that's what they they that's the healthiest diet for them to be on. Yeah the lamb production is 100% grass fed we don't feed any grain to any of the sheep uh, and or the growing lambs they're all the lambs are all finished right on pasture we just supplement with uh minerals kelp and salt
2: uh huh cool and where do the lambs go they go into the restaurant or they go into the farmers market or
4: um, most of the lambs go to the restaurant. We do uh, sell uh, maybe 10 a year through the farm store and also make them available for staff. But pretty much all the lamb is, is uh, used at the end.
2: Now, you guys, um, and you do a little bit of beef cattle. So where did you, was it hard for you to find a processor for your livestock, given that it's a pretty small herd?
4: Uh, no, we're actually really lucky. Uh, and I think that's one of the real advantages we have is we've got, two slaughterhouses, both within, uh, you know, 10 miles of the farm. And we have good relationships with both of them. So I'm sure everybody's familiar with the the concept of food miles. Our our food miles for for our beef and lamb are are about 20 miles between going to the farm, going to the slaughterhouse, and coming back.
2: Uh Uh-huh. And do you, um, how do you, you, I'm sure you work very closely with your restaurants uh, or with your restaurant at the inn, given that all the, most of the lamb goes into that. So what is, tell us what that's like. What's your, you know, I mean, being the guy who actually raises the food and then you get to like chat with the chefs and what are we going to make this year? Or what are we looking at? Or what have we got here? You just do the grass and the, and the animals and then Josh does the vegetables, right? Or that's do you right. oversee the veg as well?
4: And, and I, Josh works really, really closely with the chef in terms of the crops that he's growing. And I'm, I'm lucky because we have some incredibly creative and uh, uh, very interested chefs who are able to take an entire animal, break it down in the kitchen, mm-hmm. and then use every piece of the animal in, in a variety of different uh, dishes that they that they prepare at the inn. Yeah. So un- unlike, uh, you know, a conventional restaurant that might just want 10 boxes of filet mignon for a, a certain uh, dish, our chefs are, are creative and, and really interested in taking the entire animal and using the entire animal at, at both our inn and restaurant, but also we have a food cart that serves lunch uh, by the children's farmyard, and they They use some of the the meat there, too.
2: Wow, amazing. Because that really is a challenge. I mean, I think most restaurant chefs will tell you, like, the hardest part of being a, quote-unquote, sustainable restaurant is figuring out how to use every scrap of what you buy. And and working with whole animals is definitely a challenge. And I know that's true for Patrick Martins from Heritage Foods USA. Like, it's hard for him to get people to buy – sometimes to get people to buy – you know the offcuts that aren't necessarily the most popular in a restaurant, but he figures it out. So,
4: well, we, we've we've adapted some of our our uh, you know public programming to you know to take advantage of that. We have a harvest festival where we make and sell uh, hundreds and hundreds of hamburgers that day, uh-huh. and then we also have a Wednesday night concert series where we make and sell hamburgers uh, to to families that come and hear the evening concert. So we've we've got a very creative farm-wide approach to using uh all the things that we produce here
2: very cool you know let's bring kate in um right now kate is the um kate Torcott is the cheese operations manager at shelburne um, and she oversees the cheese making process including their award-winning shelburne farms cheddar Um, and that goes all the way from milk pickup through uh, shipping out the dairy kate can you hear me are you there I am. Hi, how are you? Hi, it's nice to hear you. Yeah, you too. Um, thanks for joining us. I know I know you guys are really busy. Um, but, Kate, I wanted to talk about your symbiosis with working with Sam, um, you know, vis-a-vis the dairy. Like, it must be pretty cool to be able to, um, to, you know, talk to the dairy manager about what's going on with the cattle or what's going on with the forage. And tell us a little bit about that relationship and the symbiosis and then also how... Uh, different aspects of grazing, Sam. Maybe you can speak to this. Different aspects of grazing affect the quality of the milk. Can we talk a little bit about that? Oh yeah,
5: yeah. I mean, right before the radio show started, Sam and I were talking about the fact that there was really torrential rain last night, and he told yeah. me that you know the cows were in last night. You know, so that's just a little piece of information in my head. I'm like, okay, so that means that the cows didn't go out to pasture solids. They're probably going to be up. Maybe fat's going to be up a little bit. You know, so this is just daily conversation. And one of I think the One of the unique things that we do is one of the cheesemakers every single day goes down and picks up the milk with our haul truck from the dairy. So it's about, you know, a little under a mile away, Uh the cheese room from the dairy. And from there, you know, we're you know, gleaning information and having discussions every single day about, you know, the change in forage or the, you know, cows are, you know, calving and, you know, just basically keeping up to date every single day on what's going
2: on at the dairy because that affects what we do up in the cheese room. Absolutely. So that changes, does the change? change in forage or does... Does the seasonal um, growth of different kinds of grasses also affect the flavor of the milk? And how do you control for that when you make one specific product? Yeah,
5: that's that's one of my lifelong goals is to be able to <laughs> taste cheese and like or taste milk even and be like this is from summer, this is from fall. You know, I mean, you can definitely tell the difference even, um, you know, from a fall to a spring cheese. I'd like to be able to say, you know, like this is definitely made in May or this is made in, uh, you know, October. And, I mean, I've, I'm hoping that, like I said, uh, in my lifetime I'll be able to do that. But, um, yeah, so we – the basic change that happens is that once the cows go out on pasture, the fat and protein drop, you know, so we have to change our cheese making targets pretty much, you know, we basically shoot for a lower moisture cheese, um, or sorry, I apologize, a higher moisture cheese, you know, because we're kind of replacing the fat. And, um, you know, to be able to make a consistent cheese, we need to change those targets. Um, and but, How do you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I think that that's, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, trying to be consistent. But then we also have to kind of embrace the fact that this is a farmstead raw milk product, you know, that every single batch is different. Um, And I think we, you know, definitely when people come to the farm, we promote a lot of sampling because we want people to be able to taste the different, you know, the difference between different batches. But, I mean, we also try really hard every single day to hit our targets and make a very consistent cheese.
2: Well, I I was blown away by the quality of the cheese at Shell. Elburn Farms. I have to yeah. tell you, I oh, mean, thank you. we had that. Like, well, Rory gave us a tasting of the one, two, three year old cheeses, and then the cloth bound cheddar, and they were just they were all so good and so different. It was really remarkable, um, and yet they were all a really great cheddar. So, you know, it's sort of, you have a sort of interesting problem there because you make one kind of cheese. And you have to adjust for all these different aspects of farming, including I would imagine weather, um, you know availability of, of forage, like how long does the winter go on and the animals are on grain longer? I don't know, you know all those variables that have to be dealt with. Um, does the season Wait. Do you have to? Let's see. I'm just looking at my questions here. I think well, we've the, just this
4: can... is this is Sam.
2: Yeah, Sam. Go ahead. In?
4: Yeah, yeah. Please. I just, I just want to make a point on on what Kate was just saying. It's sort of the intersection of where the science of cheese making al- aligns with the art of cheese making. Yeah. In other words, you can you can have a certain you can have a certain process that you adhere to every day, but with our you know the, the excellent cheese making staff, they're able to. To add that artistic point, at how does the milk feel? How does it smell? How does how is today different than yesterday? And how can we then make the best milk or best cheese out of this milk uh, based on that, that other stuff too?
2: How much cheese do you guys make, by the way? Let's let's get that out of the way.
4: We make
5: 170,000 pounds of cheese a year, so Ooh. we basically make for 10 months out of the year. Um, and then, I mean, the cows produce 12 months out of the year. They don't take any days off. Um, so then during those other months we ship off the farm with the primary focus of focusing on, we have a holiday catalog. And so basically we all just become Santa's elves and we just pack, pack, <laughs> packs the boxes for about a month, you know, wow. but, um, but at any given time we have a bit between 250 and 300,000 pounds of cheese aging on the property because, you know, we have cheese from one day old to three years old. Right. So, um, but yeah, so it's a, Pretty good amount of cheese. That's a
2: pretty big <laughs> operation, yeah. yeah. Would you say that? Um, so, I mean, I imagine the cheese making is, is a lot, has does a lot financially towards supporting the farm overall. Would you say that's accurate? I mean is it adding value like a product like that? Is that what do you think um... Yeah,
5: I mean I think that I think that cheese making adds you know, value, you know, I mean in the financials, you know, a part of it, you know, being one of the enterprises. But then also too, I think that it as you saw there's a viewing window and people yeah. there's many people who come to Shelburne Farms, they've never seen the cheese making process before. So right. you know, there's also that aspect of it too of just you know, educating about you know, working landscapes, and, you know, I think that between people, it's a really great experience to come to the farm, and you can look off to the right, and you can see the cows grazing, and then you come into the farm bar, and you can see us making cheese, and I think it's a really powerful experience. image for people you know and i I think that that's 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 definitely um adds value too you know um and then also programs like you participated in you know Mm -hmm. really diving deep into the cheese making process so um yeah there's there's uh, there's many different reasons why um it adds value to the farm
2: absolutely would you think would i want both of you to answer this question um do you think that cheese making um, is one of the things that can that could revive uh, a dairy state um, that has i mean like new york state on and i 'm sure Vermont too suffered tremendously from the low milk prices over the last ten years really and I feel like the whole artisan cheese movement has kind of sprung up around that. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that 's having an impact on state you know on the state revenue and and sort of reviving the whole idea of farming as a, as a viable way of life as opposed to a money loss? Yes,
4: yeah, yeah, Sam, this do you want to start? Sam, yeah, this is Sam. Yeah, I, I can definitely comment on that. I think it, it's one way of maintaining uh, a viable dairy industry. I don't think at Shelburne Farms we would have a viable dairy farm if it wasn't for the cheese making it adds a tremendous amount of value mm-hmm. and i think that's one way many farms have been able to pass the farm onto a gener- next generation or add another you know family member to the farm is by adding a cheese making enterprise i think it 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 is one way that uh, dairy farms can diversify their market and have a little bit more security in the market as opposed to being tied to, you know, a commodity price that goes up and down.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always thought that was like, an, like how could you ever, I mean, I guess when dairy is booming you're making money, but it seems like milk prices have gone down, down, down over the last 10, 15 years. Um, and you don't seem to get the price supports that other commodity seem to get. Am I wrong about that?
4: Uh, well, the, the dairy, you know, the whole commodity, um, it's a whole nother a whole nother show to talk about (laughs) the arcane Byzantine dairy support structure, but uh, I think if you look at the state of Vermont, while our total number of dairy farms has gone down, Over the past 20 years, the number of uh, cheesemakers has gone up Mm -hmm. and the total number of, uh, you know, total number of farms, if you look across all production, you know, whether it's meat or vegetables or fruit or or uh, cheese production has actually increased the number of farms, total farms, while the total number of large commercial dairy farms has gone down. So it's certainly invigorated the dairy sector and the agricultural sector.
2: Are other farms in your area following your lead in terms of being like grass farming dairy herds with added value products? are you sure i mean is that part of your mission as a as, an, as the educational component is working with other farmers maybe uh,
4: i, I wouldn 't say uh, i wouldn 't say that we 're actively involved in like extension service getting out there and promoting what we 're doing We just serve as a as an example, and I certainly have hosted you know dozens and dozens of farmers over the years who have come to see what we're doing and and see whether some of the things that we're doing here are, are transferable to their farm.
2: Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Do you guys think that um that the state or federal governments could do more to make farming more attractive to young people since the median age is like 54? <laughs>
4: Well, I think they're going to have to try to do something. I, 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 I feel like in Vermont, kind of what Vera was talking about with our congressional delegation, mm-hmm. we have a lot of support from the Department of Agriculture here, and and they're very active out there trying to give as much help as they can within within the budgets that they have to work with.
2: Right. What about you, Kay? Do you see more people going into um, craft, you know, sort of craft cheese, craft products from farms do you see that happening in your, your age group? Because you're pretty I young. Yeah,
5: I definitely <laughs> see a lot of interest, and I think that I think that it's a very difficult – I mean, if you were to set up your own farmstead cheese operation, I mean, you pretty much need to you start a farm, and then you just start a creamery, and then if you want to age your cheese, you know, we, we, we vacuum seal our cheese. We don't do affinage on our cheese, but that's a whole other side of things, too. It's essentially you're starting three different businesses, you yeah. know. So I think that it's a really challenging, uh, you know, Business to start, but I still see people doing it. Um, You know, I have really good friends over in the Adirondack Sugarhouse Creamery, and they, you know, pretty much just with, you know, five years of knowledge and a lot of support were able to start, uh, you know, all those three businesses in one and thrive. And they're definitely, you know, really, you know, using social media and really just kind of, you know, using millennial kind of skill sets to really become a successful business. But I think that, you know, they're an exception. It's really, it's a, it's a difficult business to to succeed in, you know.
2: Absolutely. I would think yeah. so. Yeah. And Americans just aren't that, um, still aren't that uh, willing to pay, I think, uh, higher prices for artisanal cheeses. I know that I find it a bit of a bitter pill to swallow, even though I know how much work goes into it, and how much investment goes into it? It's still like twenty-five dollars a pound, really. Well, and it has to
5: taste good, you know. It <laughs> yeah, has to right. be Like the most amazing thing you've ever tasted, and yeah. I think that that's also it too. Is that you need to be able to have the skill sets to be able to be a great farmer, to be a great cheesemaker, and I think that that's. I think that one of the things it's not necessarily, You know, capital is obviously an issue, but then also just finding good mentors finding um the knowledge and skill sets that you need to be able to make the best cheese, you know, which is a difference in Europe. You know, your father and your grandfather probably made cheese, you know, right, so right, <laughs> but right. you know, so
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Well, we we should wrap it up here. But um, thank you all so much for joining me today. Um, And people should go to the Shelburne Farms website, which is www.shelburnefarms.org. Right, kids? Yes. And learn more about what they're doing and order some cheese, for God's sake. It's really good. And by the way, going to one of these programs, you'll just think you've died and gone to heaven. I've never enjoyed anything as much. I really That was like three days of pure bliss for me like just pure bliss and so much the people on the program were so nice too. the other guests were fabulous but you guys just total standouts i hope i see you again soon um uh thank you to my sponsor today nettle meadows farm um and thank you uh sam dixon kate Torcott, and vera chang for joining me and for shelburne farms for hosting me uh, a week and a half ago which was just the greatest and um thank you as always to my beloved jack insley until we meet again my friend Thanks for listening, folks. See you next
1: week. Thanks for listening to this program on Heritage Radio Network.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.